0: Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations of harm to minors and infant mortality. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. A man trudges through the kudzu in the dogwoods, spectacles on his eyes and a bag slung over his back. He looks like a strange Father Christmas. But no snow falls on this Alabama cemetery, simmering in the dead of summer. The man stalks through the graveyard in search of a way to dispose of his sack's bloody contents. A freshly dug grave is too simple. He wants a place with significance, a place of meaning. A playground seems fitting. Return them to the soil, the bad children and the good. They'll have playfellows again. Swings to use and things to climb on. He begins to dig, hands calloused from practice. He ignores the baby cry that floats on the wind. It haunts his dreams, that inconsolable wail. It reminds him of all the terrible things he's done. So he speeds up his work, shirt sticking to his skin as the whole world seems to sweat. Finally, all that's left is a little girl. She's the youngest he's ever killed. He buries her head at the end of the slide and slips away into the darkness. But still, the baby's cry follows him. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast Original. I'm Greg Poulson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey... To Maple Hill Park in Huntsville, Alabama, a recreation area that sits beside one of Alabama's oldest and largest cemeteries, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. We'll get on the swings in the dead children's playground after this. Founded in 1805 by Revolutionary War veteran John Hunt, Huntsville is one of the oldest towns in the state of Alabama. The city owes its long history to the Big Spring, a large freshwater source that sits at the center of downtown Huntsville. Less than two miles from the source of Huntsville's life, you'll find its primary handling of death, the Maple Hill Cemetery. Maple Hill was a mere two acres when it was established in 1818 but it stands at nearly 100 acres today and contains the remains of over 80,000 people. The deceased include five governors of Alabama, 15 members of Congress, and six Confederate leaders, including Leroy Pope Walker, the Confederacy's first Secretary of War. In fact, the land that Mabel Hill was built on actually belonged to Walker's family on his mother's side before it was ceded to Huntsville. On the northeast side of the Burial ground is Maple Hill Park. It has a picnic pavilion and a playground, where dead children are said to frolic. Tate never pictured himself as a single father, but he had to admit he was doing a pretty great job, all things considered. Bryn was four, and there had been no major accidents since Tate's husband passed away almost a year ago. He dealt with Bryn's quirks admirably, and she was getting better at opening up to him. They spent their weekends at the beach or at the Marshall Space Flight Center. Bryn loved science, just like Tate. Lately, however, she was much more interested in nature than space. There were plenty of scenic views on the outskirts of Huntsville, but Tate was tired. He'd had a long week at work and didn't have the stamina for a long drive. Luckily, Maple Hill Park was close to their house. His husband, Scott, used to take Bryn there. But now, Tate avoided the place. He missed Scott too much, and he didn't want to paper over the few memories Bryn had of him with new trips. Desperate times, however, called for a change of plans. They'd spend a little time at the park and then head home. It wasn't until Tate parked that he remembered the neighboring cemetery was visible from the lot. Though Scott's ashes were scattered far away in the gulf, Tate still worried about exposing Bryn to such a stark reminder of death. But if Bryn saw the gravestones, she didn't appear to care at all. She was more drawn to the playground and begged for the chance to use the slide. Tate glanced back at the cemetery in relief, then let Bryn out of the car. His daughter's small hand pulled him to the playground. It used to be a quarry, which was evident from the stone walls that kept the area cut off from the outside world. Though the rusted jungle gym was far less fancy than the one at her school, Brynn didn't mind. She just ran off, anxious to play. (laughs) There was so much joy packed into Brynn's tiny body. She zoomed around the playground for a few minutes, figuring out what to play on first, People told Tate that these were the little moments he needed to hold on to. He did his best to try. He took a seat on a bench. There was no one else around, which seemed strange. Parks were supposed to be filled with kids, but he supposed it was nearly dinner time. As he looked around, he caught another glimpse of the cemetery. He didn't need any reminders of death either, so he pulled out his phone. Tate was buried in work emails when he heard a scream. He dropped his phone and swallowed the curse words on the tip of his tongue. After scooping up the phone, he bolted from the bench to find Brynn. She was on the swing set, flinging her legs into the air and laughing. Tate tried to calm his thundering heart. She was just having fun. The swing set must have had a few screws loose, however, because the seat next to Bryn was rising and falling in the same rhythm. As he stared at the swing set, he swore it almost looked like there was someone next to Bryn pushing the second swing back and forth, back and forth. Tate rubbed his eyes. He needed to get more sleep. Tate walked to the swings and asked if Bryn needed a push. She told him that she and Natalie had that covered already. Tate looked to his left and right, confused. No one else was there. Bryn had never been the sort of kid to have imaginary friends, but perhaps this was a new aspect for her mourning. Tate reminded himself that this was normal and was secretly relieved that at least she wasn't saying she could see Scott. The therapist had warned him that sometimes happened. The swing next to Bryn continued to match her pace. As it swung back toward Tate, he grabbed the handles. The metal was so cold it stung. It would be unusual under the best of circumstances, but it was high summer in northern Alabama, the peak of humidity. Bryn jumped out of her swing and threw herself against him, hands balled into fists. She said he was hurting Natalie. Alarmed, Tate dropped the swing's chains. A splash of leaves kicked up into the air a few feet away from the swings. Bryn started to run over to it, but Tate held her back. Whatever was hiding in the leaves, he didn't want his daughter going near it. Bryn fought against his grip. Tate told her to calm down, but she started to scream. Tate pulled his hand away. If Bryn was going to be this dramatic, he might as well let her have this one win. But it didn't feel like a win as she took off running and crying. Tate ran a hand through his hair. Scott would have known what to do. He didn't have any clue how to handle something like this. Bryn threw herself into the pile of leaves, screaming that Tate had killed Natalie. Tate froze. He had to have heard her wrong. But Bryn said it again. He reached for his daughter, but she flinched away from his touch. Tate really didn't understand. She'd never done anything like this in the past. Bryn sat up and hugged the air in front of her, head bowed, still weeping against an invisible shoulder. It tore at Tate's heart, but he didn't know how he could fix it. Bryn told him to leave, because she didn't want a dad that killed people. Tate blew out a frustrated breath. In the calmest voice he could manage, he told her that he didn't kill Natalie. He couldn't see Natalie. How could he hurt her? Bryn looked between him and the air in front of her. He saw her nod, but she still hadn't seen fit to say a word to him. She kissed the air gently, then skipped to the quarry wall at the back of the playground. Tate was torn. He wanted to follow her, but for some reason, the scientist needed to reassure himself of what should have been empirical reality. He crouched to the ground where Bryn had been and dug around in the leaves. There was something unnervingly solid in the emptiness. He couldn't see it, but when Tate pressed his fingers against the air, he felt something like skin. He pulled his hand away and looked up, Regardless of whether something was there or not, he hadn't killed anyone. Like she could hear his thoughts, Brynn yelled that she would prove that he killed Natalie. The empty swing started to move through the air at a frantic pace. The endless creaks combined with Brynn's high-pitched voice made Tate's head hurt. Then he realized that though he could hear his daughter, he couldn't see her. It didn't make sense. The playground was mostly enclosed and there was nowhere for her to hide unless she scampered off to the cemetery across the road. Panic seized him. He called to his daughter begging her not to disappear. He promised that whatever happened to Natalie, it wasn't his fault. After a few moments of unbearable tension, his daughter emerged from behind a tree, dirt smudged and teary-eyed. Tate took two steps toward her. But she put up one of her hands to stop him. Tate did stop. He was too unsettled not to. Bryn held up a small femur bone in her other hand. It was part of Natalie, she said. Tate was stunned, but he couldn't help but ask where the rest of Natalie was. All around them, Bryn replied. Pieces of Natalie were all around them. If you ask a Huntsville local where Maple Hill Playground is, they'll look at you very strangely. Most know it as Dead Children's Playground. Hopping the fence to spend the night on the swing set is a teenage rite of passage, and rumors swirl about disembodied children's laughter and footsteps. Some say they see full apparitions of children who jump from the swings and run off into nothingness. Though the playground itself was only built in 1985, Local legend says that an unknown serial killer prowled Huntsville beginning in the 1960s. He is said to have dismembered his school-age victims, burying them in pieces around the quarry that would later become the playground in Maple Hill Park. Up next, we return to the killer and his sack and the source of the ghostly cry that haunts him. Listeners, I have a surprising new treat for you. You know how you can find love in a bar or on an app? Why not a podcast? In Blind Dating, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we're expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Every Wednesday, YouTuber and host Tara Michelle introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice-only call. Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio finds all the sweetness and awkwardness of a first date, minus the distraction of appearances. But once our hopeful single chooses their match, the cameras are turned on, and it's either butterflies or goodbye. Blind Dating airs weekly, with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. It is said that Maple Hill Cemetery has been accepting the dead since long before it was formally established in 1818. In Huntsville, the land was simply known as the Burying Place, until the town leadership gave it a name. Northern Alabama was still mostly frontier then, and groundskeeping wasn't exactly a priority. The oldest legible grave in Maple Hill actually dates from September, 1820. Her name was Mary Frances Atwood. She hadn't made it to her first birthday. Mary remembered very little about her short life. It was snatches of sense rather than meaning. The warmth of her mother's skin. The earthy smell of her father's hair and the faraway laughter of her siblings. She didn't remember her death, either, only that she was there one moment and here the next. The absence of senses, rather than the overwhelming wash of them. Mary died before she could truly listen, let alone speak. Words were just sounds, a mystery of those far older and larger than her, She had no concept of mortality when she was ripped from the world, so her afterlife was very strange indeed. She felt her mother praying for her. It was a push at her back, urging her into a white void she couldn't understand. And because she did not understand how to go, Mary stayed in the burying place. After years and years, she stopped feeling the pull of her mother's prayers. To pass the time, Mary wandered. She didn't have her mother's hands to steady her, but now she didn't need them. She carried herself on the breeze, pushing her pudgy fingers on the gravestones as she floated, giggling all the while. She was playing like this when he first appeared, a white-haired man with strange square spectacles, heavier than the ones her father had worn. The man's hair was well-kempt, His shirt starched white against the moon. He carried a bag on his back, like her father's when he went hunting for game. But this man had a different prey. Mary felt their sorrow first. There were children like her in that bag. Little ones lost in the darkness, unable to get home. Mary wanted to tear the man's bag in two, but she was too small and weak to free the children. So she did the only thing she knew how to do, the only power she ever had a chance to use in her brief life. Her voice. Mary screamed. She wailed. She cried with the anguish of someone who had just discovered the cruelty of the world. And finally, he heard it. The man cocked his head, confused. He looked left and right, then nearly fell over, He scrambled through the cemetery quickly, scurrying between the graves. Mary followed, screaming, tugging, demanding he let the children go. The man broke into a run, stumbling out of the cemetery. Mary reached for him again, but she discovered she could go no further. She cried and stretched her tiny arms out over the small cement divider. But it was no use. A strange invisible wall stretched up before her, She watched the man catch his breath and head into the park with a sack. Tearing the children away from her, she cried for a different reason now. She was alone again, and the other children were too. She had lost them. The man with the bag came back to the cemetery again and again. A chorus of ghostly whimpers echoing from his bag as he passed. Each time he did, Mary tried to get him to drop the bag and run. She refused to stop. She refused to tire. She had new friends to save in his sack. Friends who might make her existence a little less lonely. Every time Mary smashed against the boundary, it hurt a little less. She grew a little stronger, and her voice grew louder. The night was warm and the moon was full when Mary first broke through the boundary. As she had done so many times, she chased the man, clawing at his back and trying to get him to stop hurting other children. He retreated to the edge of the cemetery, but she kept pushing. And for the first time, she realized she was out of the cemetery. She moved forward, searching for the voices she'd heard so many times before. She knew this was where the man with the sack took them. She stumbled over open grass to a cove enclosed by a towering wall of rock. There were strange structures in the clearing, a winding pipe like a snake, a curved sheet of metal glinting in the moonlight. She didn't understand where she was, but the cries came from here. That she knew. Mary cried out into the emptiness, but at her sound, All went quiet. She called out again, promising not to hurt the children. And one by one, the children came. Mary hadn't seen many children in her life or her afterlife, but she knew something was wrong with these ones. She remembered having two arms and two legs when she was alive. She remembered her pudgy neck and ticklish stomach, Many of these children were missing what Mary had. Some had no arms or legs. Others were only disembodied heads. Was this how they fit in the sack? Had the man broken them apart like branches before burying them in the playground? Mary was unsettled, but eager. She floated to the swing set, hope in her little eyes. She'd never grown big enough to play there. Perhaps they could teach her. The other children came in close, glassy eyes examining her with still dark pupils. Mary felt a chill run through her. She suddenly realized how alone she was. She didn't know if she could escape back through the barrier at all. But then one of them took her hand and led her over to the bucket swings. He helped her on. Mary held tight to the glittering chains that extended down from the frame and began to swing. Mary giggled and shrieked at the momentum. It felt even more magical than floating. The legless boy smiled as a girl's severed head laughed beside him. They played every night after that, and soon the other children joined in. The playground buzzed with activity and happiness, and Mary forgot all about the man with the glasses until he came back. Mary was on the playground with her friends when she heard footsteps moving through the leaves. She froze, confused, and realized that all the other children were suddenly gone. The man appeared again, with a shovel and his sack of horrors. He brushed the leaves away near the stone wall and began to dig. Mary called to the other children, telling them not to be afraid, but they wouldn't reveal themselves. She could feel the whole playground tremble with fear. So she crept up beside the man, opened her mouth, and screamed. He stumbled and fell into the leaves. Mary pointed to her friends to show them he was just a man. He could be scared. He could be harmed. Elijah came out first, the boy who had taught her how to swing. He walked to the man as he staggered to his feet and whispered in his ear. The man's eyes went wide, behind his square glasses. Another child joined them, then another. The man wheeled around, trying to understand the sounds that seemed to be coming from nowhere and everywhere. The children screamed in fear and rage, letting their pain wash over their tormentor. They screamed until they couldn't anymore. The man whimpered in fear and Mary suddenly realized how small he looked, how silly. He exploited her friends because they were alone and vulnerable. But they were together now, they were eternal and he was not. So she laughed, then Elijah laughed too, then Sita and Martin and Joey, Natalie too. They giggled and pointed. The man thought he controlled them. He was mistaken. The man stumbled, crawling on his hands and knees. The children surrounded him, still racked by fits of laughter. The man covered his ears, curling up like a child. Still, the children laughed and laughed. They giggled until his body spasmed and went still. Then they went back to pushing Mary on the swings. Mary Frances Atwood died on September 17, 1820, and whether by luck or devoted care, her gravestone still survives to this very day. Mary's brief time on earth is remembered. The rumored child victims of the mysterious serial killer were not so lucky, for their remains have never been found. Coming up, a Maple Hill visitor's graveyard picnic is rudely interrupted. Now back to the story. Maple Hill Park is best known for its so-called Dead Children's Playground, a seemingly run-of-the-mill swing set whose proximity to Huntsville, Alabama's oldest cemetery has made it a hot spot for a school-age supernatural activity. But Maple Hill Cemetery provides far more adult terrors. Mysterious women in black have been seen by the graves, and a dark angel appears above the mausoleum of a magnate who killed himself. But the cemetery's most impressive ghost offers even more pomp and circumstance. It, or rather they, move. And they'll chase you toward Maple Hill Park until your very last breath. Lan was reading ghost stories in the graveyard again. She'd started the tradition after learning that Mary Shelley used to picnic at the grave of her mother, but now she valued the practice beyond its initial Gothic appeal. There was a soothing presence to the burial ground the park couldn't replicate. She could lay in a picnic blanket in one of the oldest parts of the cemetery and lift her paper back high in the air to block out the sun. It was perfect. Lan liked the dead. They were quiet. She didn't have to acknowledge them. Like characters in her book, she could make up whatever story she wanted about them. In truth, there were more than a few people buried there that she wished had never lived, but at least these bigots were six feet under, and had been for hundreds of years. They'd be shocked to see a Southeast Asian American girl lounging on the grass beside their ornate graves, once bedecked with Confederate regalia. But they were. Worm food now. It was Lan's time to have her place in the sun, and she'd enjoy it. Lan pulled up a playlist on her phone and let the music fill the silence around her. She kept her eyes on her book, losing herself in the story. Soon, the sound of hooves came through the speakers. It didn't fit at all with the setting of Lan's book, so she put her thumb in between the pages and turned her head to look at her phone. She knew Taylor Swift was experimenting with her sound, but the hooves sounded a little too country for her current style. So where were the hoofbeats coming from? Occasionally, people did take horses out in the park, and Lan waited for the pounding of hooves to be accompanied by a whinny or neigh. But there was nothing but those hooves clopping against some plot of ground that she couldn't see. Lance sighed, turned her music up, and berated herself for not bringing her AirPods to the park. She settled back down to read, but she couldn't find her book. It had literally been in her hands only a second ago. Now it was gone. Lance searched the grass, but there was nobody else around her. Maybe someone had robbed her and run off to the parking lot but she couldn't understand why they'd taken her $2 used book and not her phone. Using her hand as a shield from the sun, Lan squinted into the distance. There was a small rectangular shape on a gravestone a few rows over. She was too far away to tell if it was her book, but she grabbed her phone and went to investigate. As she reached the main path, the hooves got louder and the ground started to shake. Lan paused. She slowly turned around, and that's when she saw them. Four dark horses were hooked together by a set of reins, and trailing behind them was a sleek black carriage. There was no rider to lead them, but the animals didn't seem to care. Their coats were glistening black, and they had no eyes. As the carriage approached, Lan took in the ornate carvings on the exterior. The inside of the carriage remained a mystery, but the curved edges of the polished dark wood reminded Lan of a coffin. Outside of the carriage was a velvet seat that a driver should have occupied, but no one was holding the reins. They just hovered in midair, cracking to urge the horses on. Lan was so stunned by the strange image that she only just now realized the horses did not intend to stop. In fact, as she turned in the opposite direction, she had the distinct feeling that the vehicle was trying to run her down. Lan ran across the green. The horses were gaining on her, moving so fast that she could almost feel their breath against her back. If they caught up with her, there would be no way for her to escape the hooves. They would press down against her bones and crack her ribcage open. She darted off to a row of graves on her left, where surely the carriage couldn't navigate around the tombstones. There wasn't enough space. Lan rested against a large slate stone, sucking in gulps of air. She wasn't used to this much physical activity and she needed a break. The horses, apparently, did not. In fact, they ran full speed through the stones. They disappeared just before slamming into them, only to reappear a little further ahead. It was unlike anything Lan had seen. Whatever these things were, they weren't alive anymore. Were they ever alive? Lan knew she should stop geeking out about ghost horse metaphysics and get moving. But she couldn't help but wonder If they could pass through objects, would they just pass through her? Did Sleepy Hollow rules apply? Lan didn't know, but if her horror novel addiction had taught her anything, it was that the ghost carriage wouldn't be able to follow her out of the cemetery. Lan sprinted back onto the path, out of the cemetery, and into the park. There was no wrought iron gate or other historical indicator of the spiritual boundary. Only a foot of cement indicated any division between the necropolis and the park. Lan looked back and was stunned to see the carriage sail through the barrier, still headed for her. She stifled a cry and rushed forward, running on instinct, until she stumbled and fell right by the swings of dead children's playground. Her ankle throbbed in pain and she knew she wasn't going anywhere quickly. Lan struggled to get up, but the carriage was already on her. She screwed her eyes shut, bracing for impact. But then, the carriage stopped. Lan felt the horse's breath and spittle against her face. They flapped their lips and neighed so loud that it sounded like a train whistle being pulled next to her ear. (laughs) Somebody cleared their throat. Lan opened one eye. A slim, pale man stood in front of her, auburn curls held tightly in place on top of his head. Mutton chops ran from his hairline to his chin. He looked down at her, but didn't speak a word. He swept his hand outward in a grand gesture, pointing to the interior of the carriage. There, on the glittering back seat, sat her dime store novel. Lan shook her head vigorously. She really didn't need her book back. The man advanced on her. Lan braced for the worst. But then, she heard a child's giggle. (laughs) The man's head snapped to the side in fear. Suddenly, it seemed like he was the scared one, and his confusion gave Lan the chance she needed. She limped through his translucent frame, feeling a chill break through the hot Alabama air. She didn't look back as she barreled to her car, dove into the front seat, and ducked down to watch from behind the dashboard. As the ghostly child's laughter faded away, the pale man climbed into the carriage and shook his head. Like he was disappointed, he sat down, and just as he cracked open the worn spine of Lance's Book to take a look inside, the ground opened up and swallowed the horses and carriage whole. <laughs> Lan took a deep breath, bracing for the inevitable, emotional aftermath of this graveside trauma. But then, that breath became a laugh. And then, another. Soon, the young horror fan realized she was smiling from ear to ear. That was awesome. Maple Hill Cemetery's most dramatic ghost story is tied to one of its oldest and most prestigious plots, that of Alabama's second governor, Thomas Bibb. Bibb served as Alabama's executive in 1820, the same year that interments in the cemetery began to pick up. Bibb only served for one year, but he ultimately succeeded in his goal of establishing a state bank for Alabama. He was buried in Maple Hill Cemetery in 1839, but he doesn't appear to have lost his interest in the markers of status. It's said that if you stand by his grave at dusk on a warm night, you will see his carriage led by four black horses. Bibb sits inside, watching you as it thunders forward into nothingness. Maple Hill Cemetery has its fair share of ghosts, but the dead children's playground is generally described as the most active part of the Maple Hill area. It's an image that's both strange and serene, all those spectral children at play. It's sad to think of so much youth taken too soon, but at least they have a place to gather that solely belongs to them. So keep that in mind if you use the playground, because you may be outnumbered, and who knows if the spirit beside you ever learned how to share. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil De Ritter and Jennifer Roche with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. Hey listeners, don't forget to follow Blind Dating for a fun twist on a classic setup. YouTuber and host Tara Michelle can't wait to help hopeful singles meet their match. Search Blind Dating and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.